Thank you, Ronnie. Uh, Well, good morning, Church at Avenue South. As Ronnie mentioned, my name is Matthew Page, and I'm the Connection and Missions Minister here. Aaron Bryan, our campus and teaching pastor, is out on a much-needed and well-deserved vacation, so be praying for he and his family as they're Sabbathing and getting some time away. Well, if you are joining us online, again, let me, let me welcome you to worship this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you would, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 16. We'll be taking a look at verses 25 through 34. If you're with us in the room and you don't have your Bible, you can grab one off the back table. Or you can download the YouVersion Bible app. The YouVersion Bible app will give you access to the scriptures uh, wherever you go. When I was a senior in high school, we were getting ready to run in the state championship meet, cha- state championship meet in Chattanooga, and our track coach took us to see a movie called Chariots of Fire. How many of you have ever seen Chariots of Fire? Okay. So Chariots of Fire has become one of my favorite movies, and it's the story of a well-known British sprinter, Eric Little. In 1924, Eric is chosen by his country to, to represent them in the Summer Olympics, which will be held in Paris, France. Now, Eric is a devout Christian. He's a man of principle, a man of conviction. And up until this point, he had never run a race on a Sunday. Why? He believes that Sunday was the Lord's Day, Sabbath, and set apart for the Lord's work only. Well, as he boards the plane, he gets ready to head to Paris, France. He receives word that the 100-meter race will be run on a Sunday. Eric has a decision to make. We see the 100-meter race is not only his best event... He's not only the favorite to win the race, but he's the world record holder. So Eric makes the decision to withdraw from the race. When he lands in Paris, he begins to shift and kind of focus his attention on the 200 and 400 meters. And as he's getting ready to prepare to run the 400 meters, one of his teammates slips him a note, and it's the words out of 1 Samuel. It says this. It says, Eric, those who honor me, I will honor. Immediately, Eric said in his spirit, he felt like that was a a voice from the Lord saying, you did what I asked you to do, I'm going to bless you. Eric goes out, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm about to ruin it for you, okay, so cover your ears. (laughs) Eric goes out, as any sprinter would do, and he runs as fast and as hard as he can, and he ends up destroying the competition and shattering the world record, running a 47.6 second, 400 meter. Now, I'll tell you that story only to point out That because of Eric's beliefs, his lifestyle, his faith, those things were so counter to the world that he stood out. And as a result, people began to ask questions. They asked questions like, Eric, why would you take such a stance and withdraw yourself from a race? You were the favorite to win. We don't understand. Eric lived what I call a questionable life. Eric lived what I call as a questionable life. Now, what do I mean by the term questionable? Well, a questionable life is a life that's so gospel-centric, so similar to the person of Jesus that it begins to generate or spark questions. It's a life that's so radical, it's so counter to the world that it invokes curiosity. And in today's text, we're going to see the story of two men, Paul and Silas, who are living questionable lives, and as a result, listen to this, generate gospel conversations. Now, if you don't hear me say anything else this morning, I want you to hear me say this. Living a questionable life will generate gospel conversations. Let me say this again. 
Living a questionable life will generate gospel conversations. But I don't want you to just take my word for it. Let's stand together in honor of God's word and read Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's sharper than a two-edged sword and it penetrates our hearts and our minds. Pray today, Lord, that it would not return void. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we walk away knowing that we are to live a questionable, transformed life. And if we do that, Jesus, your spirit will go before us and help generate gospel conversations. In your name I pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Before we jump into this passage, let me give you some context because we really need to understand the context of where Paul is, why, why the author is writing the way that he's writing, and, and, and kind of the purpose of all of those things. So Paul and Silas uh, are on their second missionary journey. And they're traveling all across Asia Minor, and they're visiting churches they had previously planted. So we see churches in Lystra and Derb, Macedonia, and they come to the Roman colony of Philippi. Here's what we know about Philippi. Philippi is the leading city in its district. It's a hub for commerce and for government. So think about like modern-day Paris or London or Hong Kong. It's, it's a bustling city. And Paul and Silas are there, and they go down to the river to worship. Now, why to the river? Well, in Philippi, there's no central place of worship. There was no synagogue. And so they would, they would go down to the river to pray and to worship. And there they encounter a slave girl. You can go back this week. It's in the first 24 verses. I encourage you to do that and read this part of the story. But they encounter a slave girl. And this slave girl is demon-possessed. And she has the ability to predict the future. So people in and around the region of Philippi would travel to Philippi to meet with this slave girl. They would pay her a certain amount of money in exchange for her to foretell the future. And Paul becomes so disgruntled, so distracted that he cries out. He rebukes the young lady. He heals her and casts out the demon. Well, now there's a problem. She no longer has the ability to predict the future, which means she can't earn any income. So her masters are furious. So angry, they have Paul and Silas arrested, taken before the magistrate. There they're beaten. They're thrown into prison where they will await trial, which will result in their execution. 
Now, this just isn't any prison. It's a maximum security prison. And they're in the inmost cell, and there they are shackled. They're in chains to, to the wall and to the floor. It's cold, it's damp, it's dark. And they're awaiting trial to be executed. And look at their response in verse 25. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So here's what happened. About midnight, Paul and Silas began shouting and singing praises at the top of their lawn. They're having their own worship concert right there in the middle of the prison. Now imagine if you're one of those prisoners. Most likely you're asleep. It's midnight. And then you're awakened to these two men screaming, singing, shouting praises to their God. But it's not just any two men. It's Paul and Silas, who you know are about to stand trial and be executed. And they're praising and worshiping the Lord. And all of a sudden, the ground starts violently shaking. And there's an earthquake. And scripture says the chains, the bonds were unfastened and the cell doors flew open and all of them are free. Not just Paul and Silas, but the prisoners. Now I want to point out something to you this morning. Did you see in verses 25 and 26 what Paul and Silas' first response to adversity was? Did you see what their response to hardship was? It was to worship. They saw it as an opportunity to testify and bear witness to the person of Jesus Christ, regardless of their circumstances. Church, how many of us, when life begins to squeeze us, we experience the loss of a job, a broken relationship, we worship? I was honest with you this morning. There's been times in my life where I've become disgruntled. I complain. I blame other people around me. Maybe for you, a, a spirit of, of bitterness or resentment starts to set in, and you're, you're angry with the Lord because things don't go your way. Paul and Silas's response was to worship. I, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what kind of week you've had, what kind of month you've had, what kind of year you've had. I know that we've all been in this pandemic together, and it's been extremely difficult. My encouragement to you would be to worship and praise the Lord. Why? Because I know that Jesus is king. He sits on the throne. He's the author and the creator of our life. And you know what? He has redeemed us and rescued us from sin and death, thus worthy of our worship. What is your response when you face Hardship. We see this again in, in Daniel chapter 3. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's one of my kids' favorite stories. And they, and they love this because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't compromise their faith. They stand firm in what they believe. If you remember that story, the king, he issues an edict that says, All nations, all people, all tribes will bow down and worship this, this statue, this idol that I've created when the music plays. And so the music plays, everyone bows down except two, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As a result, they're thrown into the fiery furnace. Do you know what happens right before, right before they're thrown into the furnace? They're standing before the king. The king gives them a chance 
to explain their behavior, to push back, to denounce their face. You know what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say? I love this. They say, O king, our God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will worship. Those teenage boys were staring death in the face, and they chose to worship. Church, what is your response in the midst of difficulty? Look what happens next in the passage, verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. Here's what happened. Jailer, the jailer would have been nearby. He would have been a retired Roman soldier. So he, he obviously, he, he, he wakes up because he feels the ground shake, and he grabs his sword, he grabs his clothes, and he rushes to the prison. Now, according to the Roman law, if any of those prisoners had escaped, you know who was responsible for that? The jailer. He would have been executed. So he gets to the prison. He sees all the cell doors open, and he's thinking to himself, everyone has escaped, and I don't want to be executed, so I'm going to choose to take my own life. And he pulls out his sword, and right before he falls on his sword, Paul and Silas are like, stop, stop, stop. We're all here. We're all here. Don't kill yourself. Now, here's my question. Why didn't any of the prisoners leave? I've read this story a hundred times. And I was writing my journal this week. I'm thinking, why, why didn't the prisoners leave? They had the opportunity of a lifetime to walk out, to leave, and to never come back. But they choose not to. Why? Here's my thought. You see, these prisoners were impressed and intrigued by the lives of Paul and Silas. They were impressed and intrigued by the God of Paul and Silas. You see, their lives, their worship was so compelling, they couldn't help but ask, Who are you? Why did you respond that way? How do you have that peace and that strength and that hope in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances? You see, Paul and Silas lived such a questionable life. They made the gospel attractive. And these men and women and these prisoners wanted to know more. You know, most scholars think that all of those prisoners chose to put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ simply by what they saw in the lives of Paul and Silas. But not only does the questionable life impact the prisoners, it impacts the jailer. Did you see the question the jailer asked? Remember, living a questionable life will what? It will generate gospel conversations. Look at the question the jailer asked. Verse 30. Then... Verse 29, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Church, I want you to understand something. This is a pagan jailer. He's never been to the temple to worship. He's never experienced the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His only picture of Jesus is by what he observed and witnessed in the lives of Paul and Silas. And he says, I want what you have. How can I have that peace and that strength in the midst of the storm? Tell me more about this God that you were worshiping and praising just a few minutes ago. I want what you have. 
their lives in worship were so compelling, the jailer had to stop what he was doing in the middle of that prison and say, tell me more about the God you serve. You see, he had observed Paul and Silas, their lives both inside the jail and outside. You see, he would have been there when they were standing before the magistrate. He knew they didn't beg for their lives. They didn't complain. They didn't grumble. He had seen how Paul and Silas consistently displayed godly character and trust and wisdom in all circumstances. And you see, that's the key to a questionable life. It's consistency. It's consistency. And for some of us in this room, nobody's asking questions about our life because we're not consistent. You know, there are seasons where things are going really well in our life and we have, we have no problem with coming to church and worshiping and being in our group and reading the Bible, meditating, memorizing the word. But then the first storm comes along. And then we play the blame game. We gripe, we complain. You see, Paul and Silas were consistent. They lived questionable life that generated a gospel conversation. And look at Paul and Silas's response to the jailer, verse 31. And they said, believe, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Notice that Paul didn't say you have to obey a set of commands or rules. Notice that Paul didn't say you have to perform a variety of works or check a bunch of boxes. He simply says believe. You see, that, that, that belief that Paul is talking about, it's not merely having knowledge in the Lord. There are plenty of people that we encounter and engage on the streets of Nashville that who know who God is. But this is a Greek word here that's pisteo. It's, a, it's an action verb. It means to lean into, to trust. And that action is it's very simple. It's confess and repent. It's confess and repent. If you want to believe in the Lord Jesus, then you have to confess with your mouth, call out loud, that you are a sinner and you're in need of the Savior and you believe in Jesus' work on the cross. And then you have to repent. That, that term in Greek is a 180-degree turn. So it means you're walking this way, you lay all these things down, you deny yourself, and you turn and you follow Jesus. He tells the jailer, he says, you want to be like me? You want to have that peace and strength in the middle of the storm? You have to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. You have to confess and repent of your sin. Here's what I want you to understand about salvation. Works are not a prerequisite for salvation. There's nothing you could ever do to make Jesus love you more than he does right now. And amen for that. But rather, works are a byproduct of salvation. Because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross, how he's redeemed you, how he loves you and given you grace and mercy, then you will serve and minister and love out of those things. There's nothing you could ever do to make Jesus love you more than he does right now. So Paul says, Silas told the jailer, believe. So the jailer's faith 
was born out of Paul and Silas's faith. Did you see that? The jailer's faith was born out of Paul and Silas's faith. Then did you see what happens next? The jailer goes home. And I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when that man walks in the door. Because he is now living a transformed, questionable life. Guess what? It leads to gospel conversations in his home. And his entire household comes to know Jesus. His kids have been like, Daddy, there's something different about you. Tell us about that. His wife would have been, what is going on with you? You're kind. You're compassionate. You're extending grace and mercy. What is going on? And the jailer said, let me tell you about the Jesus that has changed my life. Living a questionable life will generate gospel conversations. Verse 31 said, you and your whole household. What is Paul saying here? Yes, Paul is saying that salvation is, comes to all of us, regardless of gender, race, socioeconomic status, Jew, Gentile, everyone. What Paul is not saying, and don't, don't interpret the passage this way, is that if you choose to put your trust and faith in Jesus, that salvation comes to your entire home. You see, salvation is an individual decision. But Paul is saying, listen, you can have the same thing that I have simply by putting your trust and your faith in Jesus and choosing to believe in him. Living a questionable life will generate gospel conversations. I close with this story. In the 4th century, uh, Julian the Apostate was emperor in Rome. And his main goal was this. It was to restore Roman Empire to paganism. But there was a problem. It was the Christians. You see, Christians were living questionable lives. They devoted themselves really to four things. It was caring for the poor and the needy, feeding the hungry, practicing hospitality, and watch this. They viewed everyone through the lens of the Imago Dei. And history tells us what? That because of that, hundreds of thousands of Romans came to know Jesus. Julian is so afraid that Christianity is going to subvert and overtake the empire. He reaches out to all his officials. He said, we have to stop the Christians. We have to stop them. They said, okay, Julian, how do we do that? And here's what he said. We have to outlove them. So Julian issues decrees to build more hospitals to care for the sick, to build more hostels to care for the poor travelers, and to address food insecurity. But his programs fail. You know why? Because Julian didn't realize that what motivates and inspires Christians to live questionable lives is the spirit that resides in them. You can't motivate pagan officials and priests to live as Jesus was lived because the spirit doesn't reside in them. Lost people are going to act lost. And right there in a miserable Roman Empire, the Christians lived such a questionable life that it changed the trajectory of the entire empire. Now you may be sitting here this morning thinking, okay, Matthew, I hear you. I want to live a questionable life, but I don't know how. One word, abide. Abide. 
John 15 says, if, if, I remain in, if you remain in me, I will remain in you. That term abide means to continually be connected to the source. You know who the source is? It's Jesus Christ. It's not social media. It's not the news. It's not the programs you watch on Netflix. It is Jesus Christ. And if you are worshiping, if you're diligently building out a prayer life, if you're meditating and chewing on the word of God, guess what? You will bear those fruits of the spirit that Galatians 5 talks about. You will live a questionable life. And I can promise you that if you do that, gospel conversations will happen. As Christ followers, we need to be not only demonstrating the gospel message, but proclaiming the gospel message. So churches, I close. What kind of life are you living? Is anybody asking questions? Let's pray.